things that are not obliquely political, like the relationship that he has with his wives, or the relationship that all of the men in this movie have to sex, are uniquely political in the way that they are framed. Welcome to the Skiffy and Fanti Show at the movies. What he has taken away, he can restore. I'm Sean. I'm Brandon. And I'm also scared now. Oh lord. Uh, <laughs> on today's show, we will discuss Usman Semben's Hala from 1975, based on the novella of the same name, directed and written by the same, and starring a number of people, including uh, Thierno Lay, Miriam Young, Swen Sam, Fatim Jiang, and many more. And I apologize, tried to find pronunciations for these, but could not because they're just not there. So if you do know how these names are properly pronounced and would like to send them to us, please email us, skiffingfan at gmail.com. I would happily take the corrections. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, but before we actually discuss the movie, uh, a friendly reminder to you all that we want to hear from you. Uh, share your comments with us about this and past episodes at skiffyandfanty.com slash listener suggestions. We want to put together listener mailbag episodes with your thoughts, questions, topic suggestions, and more. So please get those thoughts in. And specifically about this movie, I would love to hear other people. Uh, if they've seen this movie, I'd love to hear your thoughts about this movie as well. So please leave that there as well, if possible. Absolutely. We're very, very curious how many of our listeners have actually seen this, given that it's probably not very well known to all of you, but it is on the YouTubes if you would like to watch it. It is a very interesting film. So I think that's time to get to the main event. And I have been elected by the council to summarize this movie. And so I'm going to attempt to give a, a pretty basic summary. The movie, for the most part, follows a figure by the name of, uh, by the name of El Hajj. He is a Senegalese businessman. This is taking place something like 15 years or so after Senegal becomes independent. So essentially when the film comes out, 1975, because Senegal becomes independent in 1960. And he is about to get married to his third wife. And as such, demonstrating his you know success as, as a businessman, etc. On his wedding night, when he goes to consummate, he is unable to do so and discovers that he is impotent and has come down with a curse called the Hala, which is essentially the Wolof word for uh, sexual impotence. And throughout the, the rest of the film, he deals with his relationship with his now three wives, his efforts to go to a number of marabous to get essentially get this cured from his body. And in the end, also deals with some of the fallout from his questionable business practices and also some of the things that he did in order to get successful, which included, you know, stealing land from a number of people and having that come to, you know, ruin his life later. And I think that kind of gets the basic idea down. Yeah, pretty much. It is an astounding movie. <laughs> I mentioned to Sean when we decided we were going to do this for At The Movies that I have already seen this. I saw this like a handful of years ago, in fact. Very few people know that I used to be a film student in university before I gave up on university. And this was one of the movies that I had to watch for a class. And I remember being utterly fascinated that this was... Because it was like a world cinema class, but it was one of the few African films that we... Uh, watched for that class. I remember having a lot of feelings. For one, it's a very <laughs> for one, it's a very long movie. The movie is two hours long, which now coming out of high school, going into university, deciding that I want to watch two hours of a very long shot drama <laughs> about a, a man's sexual impotence is not the kind of decision that I thought I was going to make that afternoon. And yet, here you are. <laughs> And yet, like, I came away from that movie, I mean, I will admit that, uh, like, a large portion of the movie I was still, like, very bored, because that's how my brain worked when I was 20. But I did come away with it thinking that this was, like, a very astounding story to tell in its own way. Um, so I'm very intrigued to, like, have that conversation with you, because, like, this is a weird movie. It is, and it's a film that got him a bit of criticism, 
among his other films, he's... Semben is kind of known as like the father of African cinema. Mm -hmm. This is not me saying this, a lot of other people saying it. Uh, He helped basically bring about, you could say like an African cinema renaissance in the 70s and 80s. And we can sort of thank Semben in in part for what we're seeing now, which is, you know, you have a thing called Nollywood that exists. And uh, Kenya has a film industry and you're seeing more films made despite a lot of very serious and significant barriers to making films and also distributing those films, which arguably still exist. Uh, This film, as I recall, was done independently. So he distributed it independently and it was financially successful at the time, which is pretty impressive given that he was like doing this when there were almost nobody else doing it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So uh, and where most films that were being made in Africa were being funded by Western uh, Western studios, etc. And I believe Semben also like created his own film studio and everything. So but he also got in trouble because this film is very critical of the Senegalese government (laughs) by by way of a, a satire and an allegory mm-hmm. so yeah to say the least uh, he got criticized i think by the former president Senghor, for basically the guy saying why are you why do you keep making these movies that are so critical and he was just like because that's what that's basically what activists do is they they criticize through art and they think about you know the implications of things and that's what i should be doing because that's how we end up with a better society was yeah. co- sort of his answer He's a fun fellow. Let me tell you, he said some stuff. <laughs> yeah. He, he strikes me as a very radical individual. I love this a lot. There's this, like, very unique observation. And I say unique, not that this is not a theme that occurs in work similar to it in other films and other pieces of media. But the visual language that is used to experience, to, to bring that theme to the work is actually very interesting, which is the clash between traditional values and modernity yeah because our protagonist if you can call el hajj that is a wealthy businessman who acknowledges that his wealth and privilege is in some part kind of the byproduct of embracing a more modern Senegal as a result of independence, as a result of the business relationships that uh, he has attempted to flourish between uh, his own company, his own holdings, and Europe. But he's still a practicing Muslim, and one of the most... I'm not sure if this is a purposeful admonishment on the part of the film, or just the only thing that it mentioned at the time, but that the only thing that we really know about El Hajj's Muslimness is that he has multiple wives. Yep, polygamy. And that is the dramatic, one of the dramatic through lines of the movie, his attempts to please the two, the two wives that he has already been in relationships with, and then his attempt to consummate his third marriage. But at the beginning of the movie, when his third bride is being brought to him at the reception so they can finally consummate, multiple friends and like close colleagues come to him on, re- on a regular basis and say, hey, so you're about to do the thing, you should do this. And he would respond to all of those things by saying, no, I don't believe in that. I'm a modern man. I know, I know how to please uh, my wives. And then it doesn't happen. And I thought that that was interesting in part because there are moments when I'm kind of like fully on board with that observation. For instance, one of the interesting visual metaphors of this movie is the character of, um, if I remember his name correctly, Dupont Dumond, who is the only non-African person in the entire movie. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> he speaks maybe two lines, but he is constantly present whenever El Hajj is present with his other business colleagues, whenever he's present with the other members of the Chamber of Commerce. He's just there in the corner, watching very intently, and the camera will focus on him at random moments, it like literally in the middle of conversations, while he's saying nothing and just looking at them. But he doesn't do anything in the movie but to be present. Well, he doesn't do anything in the movie explicitly with a couple of very tiny exceptions mm-hmm. when he like whispers in the president's ear at one point. But we don't see him do anything. He is present at the beginning of the film, which is the moment of 
essentially of independence, right? When mm-hmm. when uh, a number of Senegalese businessmen go into the Chamber of Commerce and basically boot out who we are led to assume are the the white French colonizers. Uh, Dupont is one of them, but he like hang he comes back into the room at the end of that event. And and with another guy and hands up a bunch of briefcases of money. And the implication is that basically the the colonial empire may not be in in control in the literal sense, but financially it still very much is. Yeah. And so he's there as this almost like this, like a devil on your shoulder kind of figure who's always there in the scene, involved in everything. But we never see him do any of the activities directly. It's almost like he's... He's not so much holding puppet strings as you know, he's basically like a line directly to a bank. It's kind of how he how he exists. And so it's interesting, this film, because you're, I think you're right that what we're being presented is a conflict between the sort of traditional Senegal versus the more modernizing and by extension, a sort of assimilationist Senegal. Right at the two extremes, if you take those at the most extreme, and El Hajj seems to be stuck in between because he wants to have these sort of traditional uh, Muslim relationships, right, Which, where his wealth and his his power is somewhat represented through his ability to have all of these wives and these large families, etc. But he also wants to be involved in uh, import and export trade, which necessarily means that he needs to modernize. He needs to wear the suits. He needs to come in and speak French. He he refuses on a number of occasions to speak one of his daughters in Wolof, which is a, essentially the actual language of Senegal. But French is, uh, is, is essentially the official language because it was formerly colonized. And so there's, there's that conflict that exists throughout all of this. And he's sort of stuck in the middle because he wants to be a modern man, but he still has these elements and i think it's interesting that that's somewhat also represented by the wives yeah that he's got because he's got a very clearly traditionalist wife which is his first wife he's got the hybrid wife and then he's got this this sort of new wife that's come in who's much more submissive and in between that are the kids right one of which is rama which is the sort of more progressive child who is pushing for essentially like a completely different Senegal, a truly independent Senegal uh, throughout the story, right? She challenges her father in a number of moments. She even tells him to his face that all polygamists are liars, which gets her slapped. Mm -hmm. So there's like all of this political stuff throughout almost every element of this of this story like you really can't look at everything and think of it as decontextualized from what like an independent senegal actually is supposed to mean and what the movie is trying to explore about that one of the things that is particularly well done about the movie in that respect is well two things actually first as you acknowledge just now is the fact that things that are not obliquely political like the relationship that he has with his wives or the relationship that all of the men in this movie have to sex are uniquely political in the way that they are framed. Uh, Like, you are right that Rama standing up to El Hajj in that moment is an attempt to have a conversation not only about uh, the place of women in Senegalese society, but ultimately whether a Senegalese society is one way or the other and what way it can possibly be uh, holistically. But the other thing that I think is, uh, really interesting is this movie is really, really focused on everyday randomness that happens in Senegal. In a way yeah. that, in a way that if, like, for the first hour and change of this movie, if you are not accurately considering the possibility that every secondary character is important to the story of El Hajj, you will spend a good portion of the movie going, all of these scenes need to be cut. Like, the wedding reception scene is a good 40 minutes of the movie. There are very long, slow scenes just outside of El Hajj's shop where we just get to see woman throwing away soapy water or we get to randomly encounter a group of homeless people sharing a meal on the street corner and then leaving and none of those things seem at that immediate moment have anything to do with El Hajj. No one is talking about or thinking about El Hajj in that moment. They're just living their lives and then you discover as the movie continues that 
all of their individual struggles are uniquely tied to El Haj. Yep. Because El Haj is the one who comes to the office and says, I don't want this riffraff on the street corner and then calls the police on people who are just playing music on the other side of the street. El Haj is personally responsible for the poverty that some of these individuals have experienced. Correct. You don't know that. Until they tell El Hajj that. So we think that the movie is just like essentially wasting time until it is revealed that this is like an endemic kind of corruption. That El Hajj is really representative of the overall potentially corrupting influence of what is essentially a European colonial sense of modernity. I have a lot of feelings about that. Like, <laughs> because. You would think that a movie that starts with throwing colonizers out of a, of the Chamber of Commerce would be a radical movie, and then it reveals itself not to be. It reveals itself to fundamentally be the story of people who see the power that was once held against them and decide, that I'm just going to hold this power over other people. Uh, and then I- immediately beneath them are blue-collar workers and the poor and the disabled who are like, no, we want to make an actually more ideal world for as many people as possible. We just need to make an example out of you in order for you to know that that's what we're planning to do. And that's unique in a way that is both very obvious in the movie but framed in a way that is very difficult to notice for, like, a good hour of the movie. Yeah, I would say that a big part of the way that you need to watch this movie is you can't just watch it all the way through and you'll get the the main idea. You'll get the skeleton. But there is a lot of deliberate choices about what Simbin actually shoots in the screen. So, like, the example would be if we went go back to Rama when she confronts uh, El Haj at his business which is a thing that I suspect a lot of people except film dorks, which I maybe you, Branded, would have noticed, is that behind each of them is a different map of Africa. Mm-hmm. And one of them, the one that's behind El Hajj is the one with all the borders, right? Everything's divvied up and set. The one that's behind Rama is just Africa. It's it's the whole continent, right? That there are no, none of the national borders are present. And so there's a very clear visual symbology being presented to us about what we're supposed to take here. One is a sort of almost, you could argue, like a pan-Africanist idea. And one is still very much rooted in a colonial ideology about how Africa should be cut up and divvied up as as nations with individual identities, despite the very large amount of shared cultural traditions across those, those boundaries. I mean, even just if we look at the history of Senegal itself... Right before it became Senegal, it was a huge region of multiple ethnic groups speaking a variety of languages. Wolof isn't just spoken in Senegal; it's spoken in other nations that are next to Senegal and around Senegal. And so there's this sense to which those visual choices are all over the place, and they all have a lot of deep meaning that I think help you when you get to that final moment, like you were just talking about this this sort of radical thing that happens at the end has a lot more weight than just what's going on when you just sit down and you start breaking down all of the visuals that you see. I mean, there's a lot going on here. Mm-hmm. I mean, like even Semben has said, like this film is probably, for its time, pretty radical as a, as a film in terms of its just very overt calling out of you know post-independence corruption because Elhaj even gives this mo- this speech Right when he's being called out by the other members of the the Chamber of Commerce, essentially, mm-hmm. where they're all saying like, "Oh, you're a crook, you're a big bad crook, and you've stolen, you've written all these bad checks, and you stole a hundred tons of rice and all of this stuff," and he just sits up and says to all of them, "You've all written bad checks, you've all stolen, you've all done all of this stuff. I am the same as you. We're all dirty dogs." Is <laughs> essentially what he says to them. Yeah. And immediately after that, when they expel him, who is the person that they bring back in? It is the guy who stole the money from the person who'd come from a a village to bring food to them. Mm -hmm. He had stolen all their money, and that's the guy who comes in at the end because he bought a new suit and he looks all fancy and businesslike. And so there's this cyclical nature of the corruption that exists that the end when El Haj is being spit on as, as his penance for getting the the hala off of him right being able to once more be as he refers refers to it as i want to be a man again that element is almost like a rebirth it's like a purging of a lot of what the rest of the film has shown us 
is ultimately this corrupted nature of a sort of post-colonial Senegal that is still rooted in colonial systems of power. I mean, if you think about it, right, the very fact that DuPont is still there whispering in the president's ear, right, did colonialism really end in this vision? Mm -hmm. I mean, in a practical, literal sense, sure. But if we mean in terms of an ideological sense, no, right? The same systems of power are still operating. It's just now the corruption has shifted to a different party. Yeah. The ending scene is very interesting, not only because, wow, that is a hell of a way to end a movie. Yeah, you never you never wanted to end a movie being spit on. God, no, <laughs> I don't think that there is a single performer on the face of the earth who I dislike so much that I would ask them if they were willing to be spit on by a, a dozen and a half people in a crowded room. So and that's yet. <laughs> so everybody in that movie is being hella brave in a way that no I, kidding, <laughs> I couldn't. I remember watching this when I was in university as a film student and going, oh, that's what democracy is. Because ultimately, like, this moment is the moment of common people standing up to someone who has ultimately more power than them and going, well, you've lost all of these things and you've come to us in order to help you regain some manner of that power. But you're only going to do that if you can bear us reminding you of how ignoble you are for as long as possible. Like, these people literally break into his home, give him the ultimatum that the only way that this hala can be removed from him is if he admits that they have been invited as guests. Which a police officer comes and goes, These undesirables are in your home. Do you want me to expel them? No, I invited them here. I still think that they're undesirable, but I respect private property. I was like, what? What's happening here? It's a very visceral kind of image on its face which is also which is also why it works like it's yeah uh, it, it's the kind of scene that if you showed it to someone out of context that their response to that will be the response to whether i want to watch this movie from the beginning and discover how we got here but also it's just like this very base visual image of what common people can do or have to do or strive on some level to do in order to stand up to powers that have deliberately disenfranchised them. Like, the thing that I love so much about the guy that replaces El Haj in the Chamber of Commerce is that we follow this guy throughout the movie and have no idea what he's doing the entire time. He robs someone who has come from a neighboring village who has been suffering from drought and has brought the all of the money that they have from their village in order to buy food for them to eat. He robs that man and leaves the scene. And we never see him for several scenes again. And then he walks into Haberdashery, buys clothes and a cowboy hat, because I guess a cowboy hat makes it modern. Of course. And then we just see him in the Chamber of Commerce, and that's it. We have no idea what this person's name is until he gets to the Chamber of Commerce. And that kind of image is not only like a reminder of like how cyclical this level of corruption is, but that fundamentally, I feel like the underlying message that is being sent as, as well is there is a point at which it becomes so cyclical that it is impossible to solve its root causes. Because the person who has been robbed is focused on the fact that the drought and the poor harvest that is uh, happening in his village is in part El Hajj's fault. And it was. But now he has no money and it hasn't occurred to him to ever think about the person who robbed him ever again. And now that person is in the Chamber of Commerce, and he'll have to be dealt with at some point as well. And then someone will take his place. Yeah, I mean, there's there's an element of... You're right, like, it's cyclical, but also it's, like, ingrained in such a way... I mean, because if you think about this, Chamber of Commerce, everyone on the Chamber of Commerce is corrupt. Mm-hmm. There's no reason for us to take El Hajj as being a liar in that moment because none of them seem particularly. They all kind of nod and they're like, "Yeah, okay, we've we've also written bad checks. You know, we're all kind of part of this corrupt engine." And in a lot of ways, it reminded me of the scene in Shirley Jackson's The Lottery at the end of the lottery when one of the I forget her name, but she she gets up and she says, "No, it's not fair. You can't choose me to stone to death." Like, no, no, you you didn't give enough time for them to pick the paper. Like all of this, like trying to get out of what is going on, despite the fact that everybody on that council recognizes that one possible consequence of 
the corruption is that everyone else that's on it who is also corrupt has no reason to ex- keep you on that council so long as you are a potential threat to the ability for the rest of them to hide mm-hmm. their corruption. And so this new guy is no different than the rest of them. He stole from a common person, just as El Haj did, just as everyone else on there did. And yeah, he will need to be dealt with, but then it's like, it's also everyone else on that council has to be dealt with. They are all corrupted. I think you're right that part of what this film tries to show in a literal sense is that the political system is just full of vipers, just full of rats, right? People that are literally trying to suck the the nation dry for their own benefit. But yet there is perhaps some sort of symbolic or spiritual rebirth that is possible for these people, these sort of bourgeois elite people that come from a certain middle class, there is some degree of redemption for them. But that means that they have to basically lose their dignity and honor and bring themselves back down to the level of, of the common man, which I think is interesting given that, again, this the government of Senegal, and it is said in the film as well, right, is meant to be a socialist government. That's what it, that it, what it emerges as. And yet all we see in the film is not a socialist government. We see a government that's extremely capitalist. Yeah. And in all the ways that we mean by capitalist, mass exploitation, right? I mean, El Haj literally sells that 100 tons of rice for cash to another person. It was meant to go somewhere else, right? He's writing checks left and right, which ends up get it, getting his hala returned to him, which men, means that he loses his third marriage and he loses one of his other marriages. Like he loses everything. It's a tragedy, right? It's really what this is, but it's a tragedy on a person who kind of deserves it. Yeah. <laughs> As an aside, like, on that merit alone, you can, like, get a lot of people to watch this movie, A Capitalist Tragedy. It is. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that I think is also striking is there are obviously other people who are aware that a level of corruption is taking place, but they engage in that system to survive. Uh, like, I'm thinking of the guy that comes to the shop at the uh, near the end of the movie and says, well, I want to buy some vegetables... Some is it tomatoes? T- yeah, tomatoes and stuff. And El Haj is like, well, I just need you to trust me for a little bit. I mean, I'm having a bit of a rough spot at this moment. Come back next week and we'll have X, Y, and Z. And he's like, no, I kind of need this now. And then El Haj is like, but do you remember that I've sold you rice under the table before? You can trust me. But like, he has no reason to trust this individual. He was just making those decisions because he needed to survive. The person who is running his shop just needs to live and just needs to pay her own bills. We never think about the fact that his El Haj's corruption is going to negatively affect her as well. Um, because she now has no place to work at the end of the movie. Everybody has suffered as a result of this uh, this one person's decisions. So even though the event, even though the circumstances are still tragic for him, the the circumstances are never improved for anyone as a result. Like no one wins at the end of the movie. Everybody just has a different state of loss, except for I guess his uh one of his wives who decides to leave and just goes back to her family. And like I guess that's that's kind of an upward social state from this point. But yeah, I thought that that was. I mean, it's it's kind of expected in this kind of story, in a story where capitalism is the fundamental breaking point of the story. It stands to reason that a lot of people will suffer as a result. It stood out to me as a thing worthy of being observed, that because Al-Hajj made terrible decisions, there are a lot of people who even knew that he was a corrupt individual who suffer because they were just trying to do whatever was necessary in order for them to just be able to eat in the first place. This film, I, I think, now I think even more, we should just, it should just be called Hala, a capitalist tragedy. <laughs> because in a lot of ways, like this, this is what's going, going on is we're seeing what happens when people with power who are themselves very corrupt get found out it. Yes, they suffer, but it's, also a lot of the other people the everyday people and even before that right i mean he's like he he took land from a bunch of people he's stolen food from people and sold it to different parties 
this like roving group of you know people with various disabilities and amputations you know missing limbs and, and all this that sort of roams around right he has them all a- arrested as undesirables and then they just like dump them in the desert and they have to like walk their way back to Dakar you know like it's this whole all of this is is just born in that and and it's, what's interesting is the way that power works in this system is that only when you have financial power are you able to take advantage of these systems because the second you don't though those police officers can show up and remove you they can literally round you up and send you somewhere else right effectively mm-hmm. to die you know the, that only so long as al Haj has some form some semblance of economic power is he protected from this but the second that he loses all of it he doesn't necessarily have that ability anymore uh, he he has a he has like a, a a snippet right at the end he still has a little bit but he's much reduced in terms of his his abilities right there's a, there's a greater degree of care that he has to go through in his life now to the point that he literally cannot tell a police officer that all those people in his house broke in they stole all of his food you know they're just dozens of these people in his house he doesn't have the authority anymore to really do anything about it he's lost that ability and even more so he literally has to give himself into this idea that i need to be i need to be purified according to their will or i will never be a true man again and in this way the film i think is trying to very clearly link a sort of national identity to a certain type of masculinity mm-hmm you know, a virile masculinity. You have to be virile because it's not just being a man. It's it's everything is embodied in your ability to have sex, to reproduce, to perform sexually. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is meant to be mostly symbolic of the type of nation that's meant to be designed here. You know, and obviously, we, it, they, he means it much more as a, a, a metaphorical type of nation, right? A nation that is economically virile but that depends again entirely on whether or not the common people are also doing well not just a group of elites i mean you were mentioning much earlier which i think is interesting there's literally that moment at the wedding scene when they like try to hand him pills Mm-hmm. Like they look like the, they almost look like the anti-smoking chewing gum they were like trying <laughs> to hand him right they were like yeah take this and I, I found that so interesting because, like, there's that contradiction, right? On the one hand, he goes to all these marabous to have have the, the hala taken away. But on the other, he's being offered these various medical modern age things to cure him or prevent him from suffering from what is obviously a, a very common ailment that does happen to many men in their middle ages. And yet it is only ultimately his return to the traditional that helps him to cure that. I have a lot of feelings about the sex metaphor in this in this movie. <laughs> Go for it. Because you are right. But like, it is this very unique kind of dichotomy, dichotomy in the movie. Because re- remember, El Hadj isn't simply offered pills by his colleagues on the Chamber of Commerce. At the very beginning of that reception, uh, his third wife's mother asks him to do, like, some traditional kind of warding off where he's supposed to stand over a bowl and hold a pestle between his legs. And he doesn't do that. But his justifications are totally separate. He doesn't do that because he values himself as a modern man who doesn't rely on what is essentially superstition in order to um, be virile. But he doesn't take the pills because he trusts his own competence. He's like, I've had, I have, I had two wives. I please, I please those two wives just fine. I don't need anything for my third. Which is what makes his decision to turn to Marabou's so unique at that point. Because it not only signifies the moment when he is totally out of options, but it signifies the moment when he admits that there is some power in what is essentially the uh, traditional ways because before this point he didn't believe that he didn't believe that it was possible that a curse can actually make him impotent but he only goes to a marabou at the point when he admits this is a hala someone has cursed me what is also stand out about that metaphor is the way that you view what the what it stands for is ultimately very complex when you view all of those parts moving in tandem 
Because what kind of stands out to me in that ending scene with all of the undesirables, quote-unquote, in his, in his house, is that the movie seems to be implying that El Haj values both the status of being identified as modern and the benefits that traditionalism gives him in terms of a national identity. That he gets to say that he's Senegalese, but that Senegal is modern. Depending on how you view all of those things through other lenses, it, it's a matter of modern corruption versus traditional purification, or the obvious kind of colonial corrupting influence versus sticking to your roots. But the thing that stands out to me first and foremost is, regardless of what anything else means, the thing that El Hajj ultimately learns, the thing that reinforces what it means to be a man again, in the national sense, is regardless of what kind of nation you are, you're a nation that is beholden to its weakest and most fragile persons. That it's not about whether you are removing yourself from the traditional influences of your homeland, or whether modernity is uniquely uh, hostile to one's morals or not. It's just El Hajj did something wrong. El Hajj is representative of capitalism's worst influences, regardless of whether those politics are modern or classical, regardless of whether those politics are uniquely masculine or uniquely feminine. He did the wrong thing, and the thing that he learns is you resolve that by making an example of yourself before common folk. And I think that's more meaningful. That's a more meaningful way to view that metaphor to me than everything else. Because he doesn't learn to be traditional. He actually, in that moment, probably hates the fact that he's been cursed and would want nothing more than to never experience like that element of traditional experience ever again because it's made the last several days of his life a living hell but he doesn't learn that that was more valuable he doesn't learn to like become a more devout muslim or anything like that he learns i need to embarrass myself if i'm ever going to be a man again because i've hurt all of the people in this room yeah i mean i think like arguing whether or not he's actually learned a lesson is the film ends on the spitting and so we don't get to see his reaction after the fact he sort of consigns himself resigns himself i mm-hmm. should say right he just sort of give he, he gives himself into it i mean the one that i feel most sorry for is awa who is has to witness this and we see we, we see her crying because of the status that is is sort of been taken away from her husband right he, he's needing to prostrate himself in such a way before them to give himself over as you say to to embarrass himself before the everyday man because what we've given prior is really his effort to embarrass his colleagues into not throwing him off the council solely on the basis that they're all corrupt not realizing perhaps until after the fact that the reason he's getting thrown off is not because everyone else is isn't corrupt and they're good people it's because he got caught Mm-hmm. And I think there's an interesting element here that we could take from this, which is the the thing that we hear a lot now in in contemporary discourse about how people really prove that they have changed, right? That it is not as, as simple as just to say, I am sorry, I did the thing and have a public embarrassment where you know, using quotation marks, a public embarrassment where you admit to your faults and take your punishment and then you just go back to your everyday life. That a part of this is that this film is trying to make sure that you recognize that n- no, 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 these are not all sincere actions. They're actions of people responding to being caught, mm-hmm. right? To having something taken from them because they have done a bad thing. And the reason they are changing is because they got caught doing the bad thing. El Hajj gets caught, right? By the very people he screwed over, right? And they are the ones that ultimately hold him accountable. It's not the government, the nation as a whole, right? Or the representation of the nation in the form of the government. It's the everyday people that holds him accountable. But whether he changes, we don't know. We have no idea who El Haj becomes after this moment because then the credits roll and he's just getting spit on by dozens of people. Yeah, I mean, I would like to believe that he changes, 
but it's not because he learns something about Kaltia or the na- the nature of Senegalese identity. He changes because the people who have hurt him have embarrassed him. And I, yeah. yeah, that's that's the part that matters to me. In observations about capitalism in the quote unquote third world or whatever new whatever new term people who are not members of developing nations have used to describe developing nations fundamentally attempts to make a kind of comparison between what we would have been if all of history hadn't happened to us and what we are now without ever considering the possibility that maybe some people regardless of the influences that have given them the power to do bad things just do bad things maybe some people are just selfish people and so that's the that's the part that stands out to me the most in that ending moment i mean there's there's truth to that i mean some of the people in this story are just bad people yeah <laughs> i mean you know they don't necessarily have excuses for the behavior they chose greed i mean literally the opening sequence right when the guy uh, dupont walks back in and hands them all briefcases full of money I mean, they're all bribed mm-hmm. with, you know, a whole lot of cash, hard currency. And so greed, I mean, if anything, there's an argument to be made here that one of the central things that is destroying men in this society is greed. Yeah. And that image is still, like, very interesting to me because at the end, when El Hadj is uh, kicked out of the Chamber of Commerce, his empty briefcase is given to his replacement. Right. I thought that that was so very interesting because ultimately it feels in that moment that the movie is saying something additional to that opening, which is essentially the money is not the corrupting influence. It's being given an opportunity to be in the circle of power. It's being given an opportunity to be hmm. among these individuals in this place. It is the briefcase it is in and of itself a, represent- a representation of status, a representation of the blinding effects, the kind of overwhelming effects of given an, being given an access to power and status. And it's empty at that moment in time. This individual is not a beneficiary of the same level of wealth and status as everybody else in this room, but it's still representative of the exact same thing that they've been given at that table. Even though, like... In order to perform that, like, essentially ritualistic act, El Hajj is made to leave with what we are made to assume are official papers of some sort that still represent something. They didn't need that. They just needed the symbol. That's a good point that it that is very symbolic because we do know that something in that stack of papers is his plan to open a bunch of other stores mm-hmm. uh, in a number of different neighborhoods. We do know that's in there, but... You're right that they, they don't care about the, the papers. The, it's, it's the symbolic representation of the briefcase, which I think is interesting because I think the film is very clearly associating the briefcase with the West. Yeah. Because the people that give it to them are all French people, presumably French people, uh, French businessmen, uh, colonial authorities of some kind. And those briefcases are being handed aside yet again to another individual. And so the symbolic power of economics in the sense of 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 trade and activity with the west more particularly i think more particularly it's it's obviously france is what they mean here because this is a thing that comes up a number of times in the story when el Hajj have having arguments with rama or anytime we hear wolof and french being spoken and the fact that who speaks what does have some meaning throughout the story so the rama for example explicitly speaks uh, Roloff because she's doing it on purpose as a kind of uh, marker of her Senegalese culture, but other characters refuse to speak anything but French because of the belief in the sort of assimilationist ideal. Mm -hmm. But all of this is going on, and and it is super fascinating to watch a film that has a semi-fantastic element that also is deeply political. This is a good satire. Yeah. That's that's the function of this movie. It is, in a lot of ways, quintessential sci-fi. Well, quintessential fantasy, rather. Even though nothing about it is very obvious, it is, at its core, a story about a fantastical element that affects the lives and experiences of the individuals who experience it. That's it. 
and it happens behind the stage. We don't see anybody actively... We don't ever actually see anybody actively put a curse on El Hajj. We could go through the entire movie watching it in the alternative... The drawn alternate lens where um, El Hajj just happens to be suffering from a genuine uh, ailment that would require active medical attention and decides not to pursue it for several days. But instead, it is the movie of a man being cursed by his population, by the the individuals that he meets on a regular basis, and having to deal with what that means, not only for him, but on a a metaphorical basis, what it means for the identity of Senegal as a whole. You would imagine that that makes it the kind of movie that, if it were better known, obviously, would be held up as like a cornerstone of fantasy media made in the African continent. It would be an outstanding uh, kind of work in that way. Even for that time in the 70s, I don't think anybody else was making content that told exactly that story anywhere else in the world, for instance. I think that from that perspective alone, it deserves to be valued in a fantasy space. Even if nobody like really kind of becomes aware that it exists, essentially. But even outside of that, we are also capable of admitting that it tells a very radical and significant story, not only in its own national context, but in a wider context that appeals to people viewing from a quote-unquote developed national perspective, or a wider observation from a overall post-colonial reading. All of those things stand to say that it is just a good movie, registered trademark. It's just an outstanding <laughs> movie. But we live in a world where if somebody attempted to make that exact same movie and deliberately said that it was genre work, there would be a backlash out of nowhere, even though the thing that matters the most is, A, it's technically fantasy, and that's what you're here for, right? And B, the story is good and meaningful. Yeah, I I mean, this is a type of film that deserves way more attention. The fact that it is not currently really available in basically any legal media uh, is honestly a crime. I'm actually kind of shocked that you can't, like, buy it somewhere. That there isn't, like, even an old VHS of it uh, somewhere you can, that you can You're find. just going to pay a lot. <laughs> well. For a, a film that was probably... Simben's most significant, or at least up there was one of his most significant films, a film that is really important, that is talked about in a lot of African cinema textbooks. This this movie's not available. It's hard to find. And that's bananas to me. This is an important work. This this fella, Simben is an important filmmaker. This m- movie is really interesting. It's doing things that are not how you expect a film to work, and yet it works effectively. It gets the points it wants to make across. I think you're right that the fantastic elements of this, the fact that they're so withdrawn is really compelling because it leaves so much for us to have to fill in as viewers. You know, how real is all of this? Well, that's that's a question that we're left to ponder rather than having it explicitly told to us. There's an ambiguity there of uh, the degree of realness that's present. The political messaging that this has about Senegal's political structure is historically significant and also is really interesting. There's so many great shot compositions here. This is a film you can rewatch and get new shit out of, yeah. which I can't say about like a Michael Bay film. Like, I mean, you could rewatch it because you might be able to understand what happened in a Transformers fight finally, but that's not why you're re- you normally you rewatch a film because you, you want to re-experience something. You might catch something you didn't get the last time. Mm-hmm. And this is the kind of film that I think is you should rewatch. Yeah. You'll, you'll probably catch stuff you missed the previous time because everything's deliberate. Every shot, there's stuff going on and it's all purposeful. And I want more cinema that is more purposeful about what each shot is doing and what is meant to be there mm-hmm. rather than, you know, sometimes I think like cinema can be just like paint by numbers. And I, I, I want there to be more intentionality. I want to, I want a little bit more. Yeah. I like it. Mm-hmm. Especially on a thematic level. Like the thing yeah. that I dig about this movie is everything means something 
even if you have to spend a good long while to figure out what it means, everything is significant on a thematic level. Um, which is another reason why I think that it's uh, definitely worth several rewatches, because not only will you re-encounter a thing that you didn't notice before, but you may re-encounter a thing that you noticed the first time, and now, not, now that you've noticed it again, means something else in context with something that you hadn't attached to it before. Yeah. Alrighty, buddy. Well, thank you very much for joining us today for At The Movies. This was a lot of fun, and I got to watch a cool movie. If you'd like to let us know again what you thought about the episode, go to skiffyandfanty.com slash listener suggestions. Follow us at Skiffy and Fanty on Twitter and Instagram and subscribe to the newsletter at skiffyandfanty.com slash newsletter. And if you like what we do, please support us at patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty and give us some love by leaving a five-star review on iTunes. I would just note some changes are coming to the Patreon, including that we are going to be hosting uh, writing sprints at 10 o'clock Central Time AM on Tuesdays and Thursdays. If you are in our Discord, you can come do that. But there will be other changes that Brandon and I are talking about. Mm-hmm. They're secret. They're secret changes. They're not going to be secret for long. At some point, we will all let you know. <laughs> exactly. That's true. They're secret for now. You can find me, obviously, at Sean Duke on Twitter, SeanDuke.net, and Patreon.com slash TheJoyFactory. And you can find me at The Rising Tides on Twitter, BrandonO'Brien.space, or at Speculate, where I GM the case of the Cinded Seal, which you can find at SpeculateSF.com. Whoop whoop! And on that note, I will just let everybody know that I have never been spit on by another human being. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it could happen. Just saying. There is a high probability that it can happen, yes. Yeah, you just have to go to a baseball game, I think. And... On that note, <laughs> Skiffy and Fanti at the movies, signing off. Awkward ending and scene. If you want to support this show, you can go to patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty or skiffyandfanty.com, our website, where you can get access to all of our fancy things. Our music comes from Holy Mole. You can support him and his work at patreon.com slash holy mole. Thank you for listening. <laughs>